This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time of studying God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful that we have your word before us, that it is your communication to us, not to leave us in the dark, but to illuminate our thinking as to ultimate reality. As much as we can learn from observing the world around us, nevertheless, we know that we cannot properly interpret all things unless we have the insights of the Creator God who designed things to be the way they are. Father, we are thankful that we understand that all are sinners, that we have all sinned and fall short of your glory, and that therefore there is not one thing that we can do. We're reminded of the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament who said that that all of our works of righteousnesses are as filthy rags, so that there's nothing that we can do to gain our salvation. We must rely upon the righteousness of someone else, and it is through the work of Christ upon the cross through his death that he paid our penalty. Our sins were imputed to him so that by trusting in him, his righteousness could be imputed to us, and that would be the basis for our salvation. Help us to understand this. Help us to understand the remarkable ministry of our Lord as we continue our study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 begins a new section in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10 and 11 are going to lead and build up to the ultimate rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders of Israel that comes in Matthew chapter 12. We see this gradual foreshadowing that began in the uh, previous section as we see the opposition to Jesus begin to grow here and there. We see references to the fact that he is accused, uh, or they're beginning to think that he uh, performed his miracles, cast out demons by the power of Satan. Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, Satan is, is called Beelzebul, and that name is first used in Matthew chapter 10. So Matthew 10 sets a stage. It's, a, it's an important transition into the lead-up to Matthew 12 and the rejection of the Messiah. It's after that that things change in terms of Christ's ministry, and it becomes more clear that he is headed headed to the cross. But we see before that that Jesus has a unique and distinct ministry that is to Israel. We have studied this uh, in the past. 
that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, was sent by the Father to enter into human history through the process we call incarnation, which means to take on flesh or take on humanity, the eternal God became a man. He added humanity to his nature so that he was both undiminished deity and true humanity. This was clearly indicated through a number of prophecies in the Old Testament. Messianic prophecies like Isaiah uh, 9-6, that he would be called mighty God, that he would be uh, called the father of eternity, this one who would be born of a virgin. So it indicates both humanity and deity. We have other passages such as Micah uh, 5-2, which indicated that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And in Micah 5.2, it talks about the one who, who is born in Bethlehem was the one whose goings forth were from eternity. So that indicates that he has to be God. So throughout these prophecies of the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's a clear indication that the one who would come, the expected one, would not only be a unique human being, but what part of what made him unique was that he was also undiminished deity. And so Christ is sent. He comes from the throne of God. He enters into human history, and he has a primary mission. And his primary mission is to bring the kingdom to Israel. The kingdom had a rich historical tradition going back to the time of Matthew, and I mean going back to the time of Moses, and even before that. For we are told in the New Testament that Abraham trusted God, and even though he never owned anything more than a gravesite in Israel, he had he looked forward to that city of God in the future. He had an understanding of the ultimate direction of human history in terms of God's establishment of a kingdom on the earth. This was further developed through the additional covenants that were given in the Old Testament, grounded on that initial covenant with Abraham, covenants with uh, Moses in relation to the land, which we call the land covenant, the covenant given at Horeb in Deuteronomy, uh, described in Deuteronomy uh, 28, 29, and 30. We also have the covenant with David, that a descendant of David would sit forever upon David's throne. This, again, indicates this idea of deity. You have eternity in relation to a physical, biological descendant of David. Both humanity and deity combined are, are, rele- are relevant and evident in that passage. Then you have, then you have the new covenant that comes in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, indicating a, a, the spiritual transformation that would come as a result of the ultimate penalty payment for sin. So all of these are going to culminate in a kingdom that was prophesied, that was expected, so that when you come to the New Testament and you open the pages of the Gospels, the first message you hear is called the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the king. We use that term gospel so much that it sort of muddies the water a little bit because we always think first and foremost of the gospel in terms of the good news that your sins are paid for. That we have forgiveness of sin because Christ died on the cross. But in the Gospels, there's also the talk of the gospel of the kingdom. 
And sometimes we get wrapped around the axle trying to understand the different, are there two different gospels? No, it's the, we ought to translate the Greek word there, evangelion, as the good news of the kingdom. And the good news of the kingdom was that it was being offered, that the king who would reign in the kingdom was present. And so there's this, this urgent message that now that the king is here, you need to uh, respond to the message. You need to repent, change your mind with reference to the king and accept the Messiah, and then the kingdom will come in. That was the message, and that's, that's the background. And so Christ comes first and foremost to offer the kingdom in fulfillment of these prophecies. There's this, this continuity between what Jesus is teaching in the first part of the Gospels to everything that preceded that from Genesis to Malachi in our Old Testament. And so he comes to offer the kingdom. First time we really see this emphasized in Jesus' ministry is back in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew uh, 3, uh, John the Baptist had appeared on the scene saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is... Uh, for the first time uh, proclaiming that same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is was when he calls his disciples. So there's certain parallels between what we see in Matthew 4, or what we saw in Matthew 4, and what we see now in Matthew chapter 10. Now, Jesus has been involved in a ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Here's our map. And we saw that uh, he grew up down here in Nazareth. And when he began his public ministry, he moved to uh, Capernaum, which was a major city on the Great Trunk Highway that came down from Damascus and crossed through uh, the Galilee to the uh, Mediterranean Sea and was a major, major trade route. So this is where he uh, centers his ministry. And in Matthew 4, he calls his disciples, and then he goes out and he travels throughout the Galilee proclaiming his message. Matthew chapter 10, we're going to see a second uh, Galilee tour. So I want to begin with just a comparison between Matthew 10 and Matthew 4. The events in Matthew 4 transpired at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, and they describe that first tour through Galilee where he is offering the kingdom to the Jews in Galilee again and again from village to village, and it is being authenticated by his miracles. And as we saw, the miracles that he performed were the miracles that were prophesied, in, especially by the prophet Isaiah, that this is what would characterize the ministry of the Messiah. This is what would characterize the rule of the Messianic king, the descendant of David, who would rule upon the throne of David, and that his kingdom would be a kingdom marked by Righteousness. It would be marked by healing of disease. Uh, he would, it would be marked by his dominion over the evil powers of Satan and the fallen angels. And so this is what he is announcing on the first go-round. And the point that I'm making here is this wasn't something that Jesus just mentioned once or twice, but that this offer was made continuously and through various different tours through the different parts uh, of uh Galilee and Judea at that time. The events in Matthew 10 describe a second tour through Galilee. In the first tour, it's just Jesus going. In the second tour, he is sending out his disciples as his representatives. 
So the third point is that the initial calling of the disciples in chapter chapter 4 was then followed by specific instruction to those disciples in what has been called the Sermon on the Mount, described in chapters 5 through 7. So Jesus first identifies these 12, and he invites them to be his students, to be his disciples. And then in Matthew's, Matthew 5 through 7, he instructs them. And then the fourth thing that we see is that those, those, those miracles authenticated his message, authenticated his legal rights to the throne and his righteousness. So that in Matthew 5 through 7, he's explaining the nature of that righteousness that should characterize those who have, who have repented or who have turned toward God in light of the offer of the kingdom. So chapter 4 describes the miracles, and chapters uh, 5 through 7 uh, describe the kind of righteousness. And then in chapter 10, uh, we see that that is preceded by a series of messianic miracles that then lead up to the, uh, the ministry of the 12 in chapter 10. Fifth thing we see in Matthew 10 is that disciples are first called apostles. See, in Matthew 4, Jesus invites them to be disciples. Now they're disciples, and he sends them out as apostles. The word that we'll see there to send out is the word apostoleo, which is the word for, for sending out. It really has a Hebrew background, shliach, which means to send someone out on a task or on a mission. And so Jesus is sending them out on a mission, but then Matthew will identify them in verse 2 as apostles. This is the first and the only use of that noun in the gospel. And so he has invited them to be disciples. Now he elevates them to those who are given a specific commission to carry the gospel out to the, to the, to the Jewish people. A sixth point we see is that he delegates his authority to the disciples. Uh, this uh, section verse, uh, of chapter 10 is preceded by verses 35 through 36. That's really the introduction, 35 to 38, is really the introduction to uh, chapter 10. What we see in chapter 9, verse 35, is a summary uh, description of that second tour of Jesus through Galilee. Verse 35 we read, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Notice that term. He is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And also what we see here is an emphasis on Christ's compassion for the people during this particular time. In verse 36 we read, But when he saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. He looks upon the, the masses of the Jewish people there and realizes that they are without leaders. They are without shepherds, that they, the, the leaders that they have, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, had misled them and were uh, emphasizing false doctrine. They have departed from the teaching of Torah, 
in the Old Testament. And this goes back to what Jeremiah the prophet in the Old Testament uh, predicted. He says, there, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have been led astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. Their resting place is God. And so the prediction in Jeremiah 50 is of the terrible spiritual condition of the Jewish people and the prediction of the fact that they would be shepherdless. And this is what Jesus is alluding to in Matthew chapter uh, 9, verse 36, that they are weary and scattered like sheep having no, no shepherd. So he's moved with compassion. The verb there is splachnizomai, and this is a, a word that means to have compassion. But it's interesting, this word is only used in the Bible of Jesus, and it's also used three times to describe figures in the parables. But the idea of compassion for us is often misunderstood. It's often a term that is driven, or a concept that's driven by sentimentality or emotion, whereas what we see here is that this is something that is driven by a, a true understanding of the condition of the people. Jesus is concerned about the fact that they are spiritually lost, and there's no one to guide and direct them. They have been uh, deceived by their leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees said basically that the people were to follow their traditions and to lead an upright life according to all of their additional rules and regulations which they had tacked on to the Torah. There's 613 commandments in the Torah, but they had constructed additional commandments and traditions that put a burden upon the people. And the last thing that they could understand was the truly compassionate uh, nature of God. And so there's this emphasis on compassion. Compassion is often linked, this word uh, spontnizomai and, and the noun spontnon are often related to mercy. And mercy is grace in action so that the people lost the concept of God's grace due to the teaching of the Pharisees as well as the Sadducees. The Sadducees emphasized some different things, but basically they were saying the same thing, that if you would follow their teaching, then you would become children of the kingdom. And yet both of them were imposing additional demands upon the people and so it put a burden upon the people. So Jesus looks upon them and realizes that they are sheep without a shepherd and they are desperately in need of help. This is why he says in verse 37, the harvest truly is plentiful. That is, the people are ready to respond to the grace of God, but the workers that were there have violated their trust and they're not shepherding or leading anymore, and so there's a need for more workers. And he tells his disciples that they are at that point to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out more workers. In chapter 10, we see that this will be fulfilled by his 12 disciples. And so when we come to uh, chapter 10, verse 1, we see the uh, identification of this particular group who represent the new workers that will go out, the new shepherds who will, God has provided to lead and direct the people of God, the Jewish people. So the Messiah here in the first verse is going to delegate his authority 
to these twelve, and he is going to delegate his power and his authority to uh, the, the the disciples. He sa- it says when he called his twelve disciples. See, they've already been called as disciples. Now he's going to give them an additional mission. When he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them, that's the delegation of power, uh, he gave them power over unclean spirits. Just as the Messiah was predicted who would rule and control over the forces of evil, the fallen angels and Satan in the Old Testament, that he is going to show that not only does he have that power, which he demonstrated uh, twice in the previous uh, uh, miracles explained in verse 9, that he has the power over demons. He cast the demons out of the two uh, demoniacs back in, in uh, uh, chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. But he also cast out the demon who uh, was a mute spirit who prevented the man from speaking in verses uh 9, 32, and 33. So he's going to uh, give this power, this same power that he has, he's going to delegate to his uh, to his disciples. And not only that, but they will be able to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, the act of calling them indicated he has authority. It was uh, uh, implicit within his act of calling them that he had the authority to do that and that he had the ability then to delegate this power to them. The second thing we see here is that the delegation of his authority and power to heal uh, and the power over demons is a clear indication of his unique person, his unique identity, and his unique position. No Old Testament prophet ever delegated his power to others. We don't find that. This shows that Jesus is more than just a prophet. He is unique in his, in his person because he is the second person in the Trinity, because he is God himself. He can delegate his power to those who follow him. He is the only one in Scripture who does that, indicating his uh, unique identity. So it is his power that... Uh, is delegated, and so when they go out and they heal those who are sick and they cast out demons, it is a sign that the kingdom is near and that the offer is indeed valid. Now, the next thing that we see in this uh, opening part of the chapter is that the 12 are identified. This is the first mention of the 12 by name in Matthew and it's directly related to their mission to Israel. It's important to understand that they are sent out, and we'll look at this in a minute in verse 5, that they are prohibited from going to the way of the Gentiles. The word there, a way, would indicate the highways or the roads that would lead to the Gentile cities, and they were also prohibited from going to the cities of the Samaritans. There is a mission to the house of Israel that is distinct to this particular situation. Now, that reality has bothered a lot of people, but we have to understand this mission at this point was in fulfillment of his mandate as the Messiah to offer the kingdom to the Jewish people. And so he picks 12 disciples, and for anyone who is Jewish, it would immediately remind them of the 12 tribes of Israel. No Jewish person would ever miss that significance. 
So the number 12 is, uh, is important here. And it is also here that we see them called apostles in the beginning of verse 2. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. So they have moved from being identified as simply disciples to now being identified as apostles. Now, this is the first and only use of the noun apostle in the Gospel of Matthew. Also, Matthew is the only gospel writer that uses the term church. Later on in Matthew chapter 16, he will use the term ecclesia, the term for church. None, none of the other gospel writers uh, use the term church. So this reveals that something about the focus of the gospel of Matthew Remember, Matthew was written some 15 to 20 years after the cross. He's writing to a, a group of Jewish Christian, Jewish believers, who are wondering why the kingdom that was offered hasn't come in. And so he is reminding them of uh, Jesus' mission to offer the kingdom, why it was postponed because he was rejected by the religious leadership of Israel, and what Jesus did in going to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. So he's writing 15 years later during the beginning of what is now the church age, and he is giving some hints as to what has transpired and what would come to pass in terms of the beginnings of the church. So as he's writing some 15 or 20 years after the cross, writing to Jewish believers, he's making a connection by using the terms apostle and church in his gospel that God has by then been raising up a new people of God in a new dispensation. Now, God has not forgotten the Jewish people. You know, there are some Christians who have taught a heretical doctrine called replacement theology, which says that God has completely forgotten his, the Jewish people. He's forgotten his covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his covenants with David, his covenants with Moses, his covenants, uh, the covenant promise of the new covenant, that that is no longer for the Jewish people because they rejected the Messiah, and therefore uh, they are no longer in a place of God's blessing, and they never will be again. And that is not what the New Testament teaches. That is a pernicious doctrine that has been used to uh, be the foundation of what is called Christian anti-Semitism, which first began to rear its ugly head in the early part of the second century A.D. But that is not a biblical concept, a biblical notion. The Bible clearly teaches that God has is raising up a new people during this dispensation, but that God will once again engage the Jewish people in his plan and purposes, and this comes at the end of the present church age uh, when God's timetable for Israel will once again be engaged as a lead-up to the establishment of the kingdom when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. Now, these the listing of these 12 names, therefore, indicates and is a reminder of the 12 tribes of Israel and the emphasis and focus upon this ministry uh, to the Jewish people. Now, here's a list of the disciples. The first four are typically at the beginning of every list of the, of the apostles. Simon, who's called Peter. Notice he has two names mentioned here, Simon and, and Peter. He's also called Kephas. 
another term, an Aramaic term, which is the counterpart to Peter. So here I'm making a point here for something I'm going to say in a minute, that often people had two or three names by which they were identified. He has his brother Andrew, so they're from one family. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So there's another uh, pair of siblings. Then we have Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, the author of this book, who's otherwise known as Levi, or Levi, as it's been anglicized. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. And then we have someone identified as Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus. This is the only time this set of names is used. Then we have Simon the Canaanite. Now, notice it's not Canaan like C-A-N-A-A-N, the land of Canaan. It's C-A-N-A-N-I-T-E, which some people have thought means he was from Cana of Galilee. That's not right either. I'll explain that in just a minute. And then Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. Now, Peter is listed first. There's an emphasis on his priority. This will be uh, emphasized again in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What was revealed is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus just said, Who do people say that I am? And then he said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Mashiach, the Son of the living God. And so this is Jesus' reply. This took place at a, uh, took place at a location called Caesarea Philippi, which is located in the north of Israel. And for those of you who are leaving for Israel tomorrow, we will be there in about a week and we will see exactly what is going on at that particular location. But Jesus goes on to say to Peter, he says, I, I say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The phrase this rock probably refers to his affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. It's that principle. The fact that Jesus is the Messiah means that he is the chief cornerstone, and upon that, uh, Christ will build his church. Notice it's future tense. This is that reference to the church that's included in Matthew. It's future tense. The church was not in existence at the time of the first advent. It came into existence only at the day of Pentecost, uh, 50 days after the death of Christ. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. When we are in Caesarea Philippi, we will be standing at the gates of hell. Just something to look forward to. Uh, the gates of Hades, there was the belief that this huge cave that's there uh, was actually an entry point down into, uh, into Hades. And Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This isn't about him being pope. This is the keys to the kingdom are faith in Christ. It's the message. It's not the man. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. We'll deal with the details of that passage later on. But the point I'm making is that Peter is identified first. And remember, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, and Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And so they knew Peter. Peter initially in Acts is headquartered in Jerusalem. Later he would go to Babylon, which was the largest Jewish community outside of Judea uh, in the world, and he had a ministry there before he eventually went on to, to, to Rome. Now, as we look at this list, I wanted to bring up the parallels. In Luke 6.14, the list is basically the same. 
until you get down to verse 15 where Simon is called the zealot. Matthew identifies him as the Canaanite and not as a zealot in the uh, Acts parallel. And remember, Luke and Acts were both written by Luke. He's also identified as Simon the zealot. The, the old King James and King James, going back to the influence of the Archbishop of Canterbury during the British or English Reformation, uh, Thomas Cramner, misidentified this term, and actually Canaan is an Aramaic word meaning, the, uh, meaning a zealot. And so it should, the, the Matthew passage should have been translated as Simon the Zealot, but it was a misidentification of the uh, of the Aramaic term there. So that clears up that distinction. And then there's another difference in Luke 6.16. Uh, there's the identification of Judas, the son of James. Uh, and then in, in uh, Matthew 10.3, you have Labius, whose surname was, uh, was Thaddeus. And it's pretty clear that uh, from a number of uh, comparisons, that this was another name for the same person. So that Judas, the son of Z- James, always appears in the same place in the list. In Matthew's list, he's called by a different term, uh, by a different name. And as I pointed out with, with Peter, people often had two or three names by which, uh, by which they were known. Now, this brings us to the mission that Jesus gives to uh, the disciples. This is identified in Matthew chapter 10, uh, verses 5 through 6. The Messiah commissions the 12 to a specific mission among God's chosen people, among the Jewish people, with reference to fulfilling the eternal promises in the covenants from the Old Testament. The Old Testament, as we've studied many times, specifically predicted the inclusion of the Gentiles as part of God's plan for the future. But blessing to the Gentiles flowed out of God's promise to Abraham. Abraham, the the Abrahamic covenant, God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and through you all people on the earth will be blessed. So that became the foundation. And so Jesus is going first to offer the kingdom to the, to the Jewish people because it is a Jewish kingdom and it was rejected, but it will eventually be, uh, be fulfilled. So they are sent out, the twelve are sent out, and Jesus sends them out. And the word that is used there is apostello, the Greek word here on the left, which means to send. It's the verb form of the noun apostolos. Jesus says, uh, sent them out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter the city of the Samaritans. And the word there is a present imperative of Peru am I. So they are commanded not to go to the Gentile cities or Samaritan cities, but instead they are to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The lost sheep are lost sheep because their shepherds have abandoned them and are not leading them in the right direction. The Pharisees and Sadducees have failed them. So there's no indication that Jesus is, is in any way uh, hostile to the Jewish people at all. He comes he, to provide salvation for them. And so this is the offer of the kingdom, uh, the same message that characterized the message of John the Baptist and his message early on. This is... 
the third time around. First time, Jesus' ministry through Galilee in Matthew 4. Second time, the summary at the end of chapter 9. And now the disciples are going to go out in a third round of uh, uh, preaching, preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus says, as you go, using a participle there, this is very similar to the Great Commission at the end of the gospel. Matthew says the same thing. When you go, uh, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach all men to be my disciples. It indicates the fact that as they go through the course of life, they are to be involved. Uh, we are to be involved in those two things. So this is a similar type situation. It says, while you are going, as you are traveling through Galilee, preach, that's the word on the right, keruso, which means simply to proclaim something. It's not a term indicating a kind of oratory or a specific form of rhetoric. It is simply the process of proclaiming something to be true. And what they are proclaiming is the urgent message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word there at hand is the word in Gizo, which means that something is near. It's close by. It's about to happen. That adds this sense of urgency. We see it used several times in relationship to this message as it's, as it's used with John the Baptist and his message and Jesus uh, and his message. John used this in Matthew 3.1, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Gizo. Jesus uses it in Matthew 4.17 and 4.23 as well as in 9.35. But here it's going to now be the message of the disciples. The idea of this word is seen in Matthew 26.45, and in Matthew 26:46, Jesus says, Then he came to his disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is near. The hour is at hand. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, it's, it's almost here. So it's talking about something that is in close proximity. And he said to his disciples, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas is, is here. So it's indicating that how close the kingdom was, that if the Jewish people had accepted him as Messiah, then the kingdom would have come in at that particular time. It would have happened. But because they rejected him, another plan went into effect. But it doesn't permanently remove the kingdom. It said there's going to be an intervening age, the church age, and then... Uh, there will be the time of judgment during what is called the Great Tribulation, and then Jesus will return. He will be accepted by the Jewish people. This is a prophecy uh, that's really based more on the Old Testament passages that they would call upon the Messiah, and he would deliver them. Passages such as the end of Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, and other passages. And so they, when they accept the Messiah, then he will bring in the kingdom. So this is just emphasizing the proximity and the nearness of the kingdom. And then he gives them a mission. We'll deal with the details of this more when I come back. But he says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers. Remember, healing lepers was a specific sign of the Messiah. Raise the dead. Again, the rabbis understood the Old Testament indicating that only the Messiah could raise the dead. Cast out demons. Again, only the Messiah could truly cast out demons. This isn't the word exorchizo. He's not performing some mystical, magical rite of exorcism. It's the word ekbalo, which is quite different. Only Jesus could ekbalo demons, could cast out demons. And then he says to them, freely you have received, freely give. This is an emphasis on grace. 
This is something that is at the core of the message of the gospel of the kingdom and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is what has characterized God's, God's dealings with the human race ever since the fall of Adam, that he freely offers salvation because there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve salvation. There's nothing we can do to gain righteousness or to be righteous. We can't do it on our own. Scripture says that there is none righteous coming out of the Psalms. There's none righteous, no, not one. Isaiah said that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So how do we get righteousness? Only through someone who has that righteousness and the abundance needed to give righteousness to everyone. And that means that that person must not only be humanity in order to die as our substitute, but he must also be infinite in his capacity. And so Jesus as the God-man is both infinite as deity and as a man is able to substitute for humanity and pay the penalty for sin. So that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. That's the grace of God. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We can never be good enough to gain it. We get it only by faith, by trusting in him. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The mistake that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and many other religious leaders down through the ages have made is that somehow we have to be good enough to merit God's favor. But what the Bible teaches is we can't ever do it. You can't even help. You can't even try. You can't even come close. Jesus did it all. As the hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. All we have to do is accept what he's done for us, and then we have eternal life. It's a free gift. And this was the message that the disciples were to have as part of their message of the presence of the kingdom is they were to uh, freely give because they had freely received of eternal life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to uh, reflect upon your word, to be reminded that the ministry of Jesus was not something that just happened, but it was the result of centuries of development and provision by you through the Old Testament. It was prophesied and promised as you prepared the people to respond to to your offer of salvation. And, Father, we see of the grace that was manifested at that time, that despite rejection, despite hostility, there is still the continuous offer of salvation. Even after the cross, we see it, that that offer was made again and again because it's not based on who we are or what we do. It's based on who you are and what Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture says the issue is simple. It is not what you've done. It is not your failings. It's not your sin. It's what Jesus Christ did to pay that penalty. So that the issue is not moral reformation of your life. The issue is trusting in Jesus and accepting his free gift of righteousness and justification that we might have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would drive these truths home to us, that we might understand them and grow in the, continue to grow in the grace and knowledge 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.